From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A culinary Colorado Matters today. Cooking connects us to each other and to memories. Pinto bean sandwich. Well, my mom always made them. Oh my gosh, it was good. You heard that right, a pinto bean sandwich. There's also pinto bean fudge, which we'll make as we honor the leguminous bounty of Southwest Colorado. The beans are boiling. Turn down the heat. Just a couple more hours and we'll be good to go. Plus, the soul food scholar on the history of barbecue, which is a tangle of times and cultures. And eventually, Europeans melded their quick grilling techniques onto the slow smoking traditions of Native Americans. And what it takes to become a barbecue judge. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The beans are boiling. Now I'm going to get the lids. Pull them on. Turn down the heat. Just a couple more hours and we'll be good to go. Pinto beans from southwestern Colorado are on the stove. But Andrea Chalfin, my colleague from KRCC, isn't making chili or soup or bean salad. All right, we're going to get ready to do the bean fudge. First thing that we've got to do is actually cook the beans. And I am starting from dry beans So the first step is, of course, to uh, rinse, sort, and cook the beans. Did you catch that? Bean fudge? This recipe comes from an old Colorado cookbook. You see, in the towns of Cortez, Dolores, and Dove Creek, people get downright creative with pintos. In the 1950s and 60s, there were recipe contests, and winners were crowned pinto bean queens. These recipes were compiled into cookbooks called From the Queen's Kitchen. The fudge calls for unsweetened chocolate, a load of butter, powdered sugar, and, of course, mashed beans. Hours later, Andrea's made some progress. Looks like a giant Tootsie Roll. (laughs) It does. It looks like a log. All right, smooth it out into the corners. And there we go. Let me cover it with some saran wrap. (laughs) And stick it in the fridge to cool. Once she was done baking and chortling to herself, Andrea drove up from Colorado Springs to Denver with two hefty pans of fudge. She actually tried a second batch with Anasazi beans, and she cut me a slice. Oh, there's a square missing. Have you had some without me? I did. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I did. Oh, that came up easily. Nice. Oh, it has a nice weight to it. 
you've given me a slice that's about the size of, what would you say, like a folded over dollar bill. Oh, that is, that is packed full of sugar and butter. That is a dessert, Andrea Chalfin. <laughs> Hard to distinguish uh, beans, though. It I would, is. Like, if you didn't tell me, I, there's no way I'd know. Right, right, yeah. What do you, th- so how was it to cook with them? Um, it was actually relatively easy. I mean, I use dried beans, so I made the dry beans a couple nights ago. Uh, and then you mash them. And, you know, I mm. I think some people probably would use their a mixer or a food processor, and I just used a fork. And that was... Be like old school. Yeah. I, well, I tried a potato masher, and that didn't quite work. So I went to a fork. Wait, are there nuts or something in here? No. <laughs> so that might just be like bits that have, of bean? Yes. The Anasazi beans were actually far more easier to mash um, than the pinto beans. The pinto beans, you know, I couldn't do it anymore. Okay, so what I'm tasting there consistency-wise, is bean-like, but the, no bean taste, mm-hmm. even in the beans. Mm-hmm. I think you've done a really good job. I shouldn't talk with my mouth full like that. Anyhow, this recipe is at cpr.org slash kitchen shelf. Kitchen shelf, by the way, is the name of our series about vintage Colorado cookbooks and the recipes and stories and histories inside. Andrea heard our segment about From the Queen's Kitchen, and couldn't resist trying her hand at the fudge. Well, today, as 2021 winds down, we listen back to some of our favorite food segments, including the one about pintos, which covered both entrees and, indeed, desserts. Well, you just don't think of pinto beans being sweet. You know, applesauce bean cookies. 82-year-old Ann Wilson-Brown of Cortez still uses her 1960s-era Bean Queen cookbook. Her dad, like many farmers in the area, grew pintos. Her mother fed a growing girl pinto bean sandwiches. And Ann has served pinto beans to three U.S. senators. So, Ann, before we get to the beans and that Senate connection, how do you make a pinto bean sandwich? Pinto bean sandwich, well... My mom always made them with fresh bread. And of course, I'm sure you could use regular bread. The first time she said, I don't have any lunch meat. Let's have a pinto bean sandwich. And I was probably eight years old and I groaned because, you know, (laughs) girls that age. So I watched her and, oh my gosh, it was good. It was good. And was it... Were the beans mashed up, or were they still identifiable? No, Mom didn't mash them. I learned to mash them for my own kids after I started doing bean sandwiches for them. And then some people use Miracle Whip. Some people like mayonnaise. Some people just put warm beans and butter. Or you can mash up the beans and mix a little mayonnaise in them and put a sprig of mustard on them, and put the other slice of bread on top. My mom cooked pintos millions of ways, adding potatoes or adding tomatoes or, of course, onions and ham, and that still is my favorite. So, Anne, you grew up on pinto bean sandwiches, but that did not mean you tired of them in adulthood. 
the sandwiches oh, or, no. or the beans. Oh, no. Is it true that no. you, you eat beans every week? Well, I eat beans. In fact, we had beans two days ago. Oh. Mostly in the winter because a pot of beans cooking just makes the house smell wonderful. <laughs> I never tired of them and, and neither have my family. How is it that you fed pinto beans to three U.S. Senators, Ben Nighthorse Campbell, Ken Salazar, and Michael Bennett? (laughs) Usually it was when I would have a staff meeting because the district office was in Durango. You were a regional director for all of them. I was regional director for all of them, uh, office director. And so it was generally whenever we'd have a staff meeting or something and they would be invited and they would come. And, well, I'm sure that Senator Salazar had beans as a young child. I don't know him ever telling me that. And I'm sure that Senator Campbell did. I'm not sure about Senator Bennett, but I do know that he enjoyed him when he was here. (laughs) Beans have been growing in southwestern Colorado for 130 years at least, The little town of Dove Creek, home to two bean mills, has laid claim to being the pinto bean capital of the world. Is there something about the soil or the climate there? Um, The soil is is a real rich, sandy loam. Part of that soil, you know, came in from, uh, blew in from Arizona and, and the Southwest. Most of the beans early on were dryland beans, because Dove Creek itself in that area is right around 7,500 feet altitude. So they would get more moisture than down in Cortez at 6,000 feet. So they had dryland beans for years until we we built McPhee Dam and uh, Reservoir, and now they can irrigate the beans or or hay, or whatever they grow now. At one time, there were 14 different bean warehouses throughout the years. Now there are two. Dove Creek Bean Company is one, and they're the ones that have a lot of the gourmet beans, and the other one is Adobe Milling Company. Well, let's get back to this cookbook, which has gems like pinto bean pizza, They're fake chicken legs made out of pinto beans molded onto sticks. Uh, Something called shocking pink pinto bean dip, pinto bean donuts, pinto bean and cabbage jello, which sounds horrific. And the 1957 top prize winner, pinto bean special. Uh, That recipe sounds like a standard chili with tomatoes, onions, green peppers, ground beef. Right. Where the special part comes in, the recipe calls for ladling that on top of a pancake. <laughs> and, and that's interesting. We make the pinto bean special a lot at our house, but I don't use the pancakes. You don't? No. I don't know why she added pancakes. <laughs> I guess that's what made it special. My favorite recipe is the pinto fiesta cake. Tell me about the Fiesta Cake. The Fiesta Cake was the 1960 Grand Award 
it has two cups of pinto beans and then it has diced raw apples. Oh, unexpected. And of course, sugar and butter and eggs and flour and soda and salt and cinnamon and cloves, allspice. And now, then it has raisins. And then it has raisins. Now, what are the pinto beans doing in a cake like that? What purpose are they serving? <laughs> I talked to her oh, a couple of years ago about her cake because I have made it several times and it's a really moist spice cake with raisins and apples and because you mash up the pinto beans, you don't even notice the beans or the bean holes. Huh. So is it's, it is uh, it possible that the beans are providing a kind of steady moisture? Steady moisture like an applesauce would. Yeah. And, of course, beans are high in protein. So you get a little protein so, with your dessert. So yeah, do you think that was, people should be more adventurous with, with beans? I think people could be very adventurous with beans. You can do all kinds of things. And, of course, the cookbooks over the year have all different kinds of recipes. Every cookbook was different. These you know, would be updated each year with the winners. Oh, yes. In a lot of these pinto bean recipes... You do not season the pinto beans. Uh, Case in point, the mashed bean mince. Mince, yes, mince. (laughs) That's right. Uh, For most of the recipes, you you do use just plain pinto beans cooked. You don't put any salt and pepper on them or any sugar or anything in them. You use them just plain. What about these mints? I can't fathom the idea of a bean consistency with a mint flavor well you don't even notice the beans it has a little flour food coloring peppermint melted chocolate and marchino cherries now all of that mixed together does not sound exceptionally tasty (laughs) but they are and thank you so much i appreciate it is that all we're saying that's it 83-year-old Ann Wilson-Brown is a fourth-generation Cortez-area resident who's eaten pinto beans her whole life. She shared from the Queen's Kitchen a collection of pinto bean recipes. It's back in February for our series The Kitchen Shelf. Recipes for pinto bean fiesta cake, pinto bean special, and the pinto bean fudge are at CPR.org. I really don't cook, except for the occasional waffle in my waffle maker. But when I see a cookbook, I can't help but wonder what the recipes inside reveal about a given time and place. I picture home cooks rolling up their sleeves and measuring out ingredients. All of that is wrapped into our series, The Kitchen Shelf. Let's head to Durango next, where the Animus City Schoolhouse still stands. It's now home to the Animus Museum. For more than a year and a half now, Coloradans have dug out their favorite local cookbooks and shared them with us. When this next one hit my inbox from southwest Colorado, I thought it was a typo, a cookie book. But in fact, Carolyn, it's it's not a typo, right? This is a cookie book. It is indeed. All of the recipes in it are cookies. Carolyn Baura is a volunteer with the Animus Museum, which compiled this Animus City cookbook, and uh, which throwback recipe did you make from it, Carolyn? We made, and and I say we because one of my history buddies helped me with the cooking aspects of it. We made the pineapple cookies. The recipe originated on a scrappy little piece of paper that was in the museum archives. 
printed across the top of the scrappity paper was from the desk of Warren Buckley. Warren Buckley. And I'll just say the pineapple cookies, I think, are some of the special occasion cookies. Do I have that right? You do indeed. The book is divided into three sections with everyday cookies suitable for feeding to children, putting in their lunchbox, and then special occasion with a little bit of upgrade on ingredients, maybe suitable for a lady's tea. And then, of course, we have the holiday section. The holiday section, which includes, by the way, some date tea cakes that sounded pretty good to me. Uh, The million-dollar question is, how are the pineapple cookies? They were really quite good. We made two batches. The first one loosely followed directions. We just wanted to see if this was worth pursuing at all or if the whole thing would just be ridiculously horrible. (laughs) And it was good enough. We did it again and followed the recipe to the letter. And we got a moist kind of a cakey recipe, just a hint of the pineapple flavor and not super sweet. I'm not a fan of the sickly sweet baked goods. And these were just really good. And you say they're cake-like in consistency, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're not crunchy. They're moist and cakey. Oh, I feel like it's such a win when you bake and something stays moist, you know? Well, and we're at a high enough altitude. Anytime we bake without modifying a recipe, you do it with a bit of a devil-may-care attitude of, well, this may work or it may it may crash and burn. Durango at, what's the altitude there? 6,500, yeah. Yeah, 6,512. Specifically. What do we know about these pineapple cookies and where they came from? We don't know a lot about the origin of the recipe. Warren Buckley worked for the schools here. He came to La Plata County in 1931. His brother Wendell joined him a few years later. They were teachers. Wendell became principal of the Anima City School at one point. And when he was drafted into the Army for World War II, his brother Warren took his place. They taught math and science. Wendell taught chemistry and history. And they remained as principals until they retired. Hmm. And one of our local parks here that it abuts the old high school building uh, is named now Buckley Park. Buckley Park. So just from a historic standpoint, we thought we need to try this recipe Although why a recipe would be written on a notepad from the principal's desk uh, remains lost to history. (laughs) Well, I think people feel strongly about oatmeal cookies, love them or hate them. Uh, The oatmeal cookie recipe in this book comes from Zippy McDaniel, born in Rico, Colorado, a former silver mining center in Dolores County. And she came up from modest means, but her family became a pillar of the community You've basically compiled cookie recipes from all over your archives, right? Yes. We have several cookbooks in our collection. You know, those community cookbooks that churches and ladies' groups used to do as fundraisers. We have some that go way, way back to the earliest days of Durango. We also have some of those little recipe booklets that are put out by brand names. We have one from... I think it's the late 40s, maybe early 50s, that was put out by the Corn Council. So it has, you know, a lot of caro syrup and mazola and corn-based things. Oh, yeah, there's a caro syrup cookie recipe in this book. It is. And we haven't tried that one yet. (laughs) Okay. So perhaps some of your listeners will take that on. Applesauce cookies as well. And so you compiled the cookie recipes from all of these various books and scraps of paper into the cookie book. Correct. And I'd love you to describe your surroundings right now, because you're in the schoolhouse. 
Actually, I'm not, because the school, it's a very old building with very high ceilings and a lot of hard surfaces, and the acoustics in it sometimes get a little echoey. <sighs> oh, that was so thoughtful of you. Well, describe it for us. We're not talking a one-room schoolhouse. This is a three-story affair. It really is. Actually, it's a, a four-story affair, but the fourth floor is just attic space. But it's tucked into a hill enough that we have ground-level entrances on two floors, and it's a magnificent stone building. Historically, Anima City was founded in 1876 as a support town when they discovered precious minerals up in the high country. So Anima City had hotels and assay offices and mercantiles, and it, it was hopping. And then when the railroad came in, they did what railroads did, and they built their own town two miles south, and they called theirs Durango. (laughs) Uh, But they built this sandstone building from locally quarried stone that was the most imposing building in Animus City. So it was not only the school, it was a community center because it was bigger than the town hall. It was the biggest public building. It hosted PTA events. During World War One, Red Cross operations happened there. It's just a huge anchor in the community. It opened in 1905 with spacious classrooms and steam heat. And I suppose that any number of cookies would have been consumed inside, be it by school children or otherwise. That is our assumption. Between kids' lunches and then PTA things and community events and, you know, receptions, we imagine there must have been millions of gallons of punch and millions of cookies served. Including your own pineapple cookies. Thank you so much for being with us, Carolyn. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been fun to chat with you. Carolyn Baura is a volunteer with the Animus Museum in Durango. We spoke in September. She shared recipes from the Anima City Cookie Book at CPR.org. Find four recipes, pineapple, oatmeal, date, and Cairo syrup cookies. A very special dish is almost ready. A Thai dish, noodles with crab curry. I'm putting a little chopped parsley on the crab soba. And then I'm garnishing it with a sliced hard-boiled egg. The cook is Holly Arnold Kinney. We're at her home in Denver, where she has a veritable library of vintage cookbooks. This recipe she's making, it comes from a book we just had to highlight in our series, The Kitchen Shelf. Well, this, I've never made this recipe, and I haven't had it really since I was a little girl at Lily's Restaurant. So hopefully it's a taste memory for me. Lily's Restaurant. She's referring to the late Lily Chitavedge, who opened what's widely recognized as the first Thai restaurant in the United States, in Denver, in the early 1960s, Chata Thai. Mmm. <laughs> I used fresh Dungeness crab, and I handpicked it out for you, Ryan. That's what makes it really good. You can use canned crab, but I like the fresh, and the, Lily always used fresh crab. It has bean sprouts that are crunchy. Okay, I'm excited to try. I gave you the first taste, and I want to make sure I get a little egg with my first bite. Mm. 
That crab is so wonderfully rich. I see what you mean about using the real stuff. <laughs> the curry sauce in this is a mung bean. Uh, you boil mung beans till they're soft, and then you puree them with coconut milk. Our host, Holly Arnold Kinney, was a foodie before the term even existed. She owns the Fort Restaurant in Morrison, which specializes in foods of the Old West. Her parents started it, and right around that time, the early 60s, Lily Chidavedge was opening Chata Thai. You'd walk in the restaurant, and she'd have all these amazing decorations and costumes of Thai dancers hanging on the wall, decorating her restaurant. And I was fascinated with the brass long fingernails that the Thai dancers use to put on their hands to accentuate their hand movements and the crown of jewels that they would wear when they dance. But Lily would always come out. She was very short in stature. She was about four feet five, but she was tough. Governor Lamb used to go there, and she'd always give her political opinions to him and what we should or shouldn't do and what they need to do in Thailand. And she was very outspoken and said, you need some baby garlic or you need some pickled garlic or more chili. And so my father loved her. Holly's late father, Sam Arnold, is a culinary legend. He taught cooking classes with James Beard in China, knew Julia Child and corresponded with her, had a PBS series called Frying Pans West. And the Arnolds were close to Lily and her family. So she had strong opinions about cuisine and strong opinions for former Democratic Governor Dick Lamb about politics. Absolutely. She was very political. And as for Lily Chittavedge's cookbook, it includes recipes like Thai chicken salad, pad thai, and these noodles with crab curry, which calls for spaghetti. Holly's using fettuccine. Fettuccine, that's surprising. Well, at the Chata Thai in the 1960s, they didn't have many choices of Thai noodles. And Lily felt spaghetti was a good noodle from the Italian communities here. And it was familiar to many Americans. So she always used spaghetti or linguine in her recipes. This notion that Denver was home to the first Thai restaurant in the U.S. flies in the face of a common perception of Denver, that this is or was a cow town, a meat and potatoes place. Holly Arnold Kinney balks at that. Absolutely. Uh, My father belonged to the International House, which had a large Filipino population, and we'd have them over at our house all the time. They would cook foods from their homeland. We are a city of immigrants. We had a huge uh, group of Japanese, Chinese, Thai. Lily's husband was stationed in the military near Fort Simmons. So she thought, well, I'm going to open a restaurant with Thai food. And she brought her own home recipes, but adapted them to what ingredients she had here. But she loved the fresh vegetables we had here. And so one of the side dishes of this crab curry I'm going to have you taste is a simple flour egg batter with eggplant and zucchini and fried in oil. But you need to have the oil hot so it doesn't soak up the oil. It crisps it Mm -hmm. and cooks the vegetable. The veggies turn out eggy and delightfully al dente, but it's a wonder we're able to enjoy these dishes at all. You see, something happened to Holly's treasured copy 
of Lily's Cookbook. I don't know if you want to record this. <laughs> well, why not? Okay. So I get Lily's Cookbook out of my library, which we have a 3,000-volume rare cookbook in Western History Library. And I brought it up to my counter in my kitchen. I put it in the middle, and so I had it out with the recipe I was going to make, and I had all the ingredients, but I was missing the crab and the mung beans. So I left yesterday to go to the store to buy the crab, and I came back an hour later, and my dog, Frenchie, she had gotten up on the counter, got the cookbook, and ate half of the book. And I came home, and the book is, is just torn to pieces. I was just, it felt like my father had died all over again. It was such a grieving moment for me. And I was reading all the stories that Lily had of my father in her cookbook uh, before I went to the store. So then I go outside and walked by my neighbor, and I told her how upset I was that the dog ate Lily's cookbook. She said, you know, I have a copy of that book at home. I'll get, it's a Xerox copy. So she brought over the cookbook on Xerox. So I now have at least a full Xerox copy of it. But what it tells me is probably many of your listeners who happen to be from Denver probably have that cookbook in their library. Saved by a photocopy, which allowed us to cook from Lily's cookbook, recipes from the first Thai restaurant in the U.S., which opened in Denver in the early 1960s. Find the recipes for noodles with crab curry and battered vegetables at cpr.org slash kitchen shelf, along with all of our kitchen shelf recipes. And a happy note to end on, after we first shared this story in May, Lily's daughter-in-law phoned Holly, saying she had another copy of the cookbook, which she was happy to give her. Okay, when we come back, let's fire up the barbecue. This is a special Culinary Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. December 1914. In Denver, 10-year-old David Sturgeon is too sick to join his family downstairs around their Christmas tree. His father, an electrician, has an idea. Paint some light bulbs, green and red, string them in a long circuit around a pine his son can see from his bedroom, and keep the tree lit through the night. People came from all around town to see the first electrified outdoor Christmas tree, and the next December, neighbors added lights to their own trees and homes. In the 1920s, Denver's mayor allowed a light display on City Hall. By the 1950s, this annual municipal project required 25,000 bulbs and 17 miles of wiring. It's a tradition that continues, including the stipulation that the city and county buildings stay lit in a colorful cacophony of cheer well into January to greet the stock show coming to town. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. From the kitchen shelf to the barbecue now with the soul food scholar, Adrian Miller. A dream come true is how the Denver food writer describes an ad he saw in the newspaper back in 2004. The offer was to become a judge, a barbecue judge. So he signed up, took an oath. Yes, there's an oath. And his badge came in the mail. Now, almost two decades later, 
Miller is thoroughly steeped, maybe we should say marinated, in barbecue. His book is Black Smoke, African Americans and the United States of Barbecue. We spoke in April. Adrian, welcome back to the program. Oh, so good to be with you. In addition to being a soul food scholar, I should mention for transparency's sake that you're a member of CPR's board of directors. But uh, we've got to start with this barbecue judge oath (laughs) with the Kansas City Barbecue Society. You don't reveal it in the book. Will you tell us the oath here, Adrian Miller? I will not because it's a sacred thing and I can already tell that some of your listeners will mock it. And so I will not repeat that now. You have to go through the process. So after seeing this ad in the now defunct Rocky Mountain News, you headed over to the Adams County Fairgrounds, I think, to train as a barbecue judge. What stood out to you about that experience? Well, the first thing is, um, I have to say right away, it's the best conversation starter I've ever had. I mean, people are like, oh, you worked in the White House? That's cool. But I want, you're a barbecue judge? I want to talk to you about that. So the first thing when I walked in, as the kids say, I was the only dude under 250, which is (laughs) 250 pounds. So I saw my future. But, you know, I was willing to go through it because at that time I, I knew I was writing about soul food. And so many soul food restaurants have a barbecue option on the menu. And then so many black run barbecue joints have soul food side dishes. So I thought, well, let me learn more about barbecue to inform soul food. So that's really why I did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what they do is they go through the categories, pork, which is usually pork shoulder, pork spare ribs, beef, which is usually brisket, chicken, which is usually chicken thighs. And then uh, you judge it on taste, texture, and appearance, nine-point scale. Taste, texture, texture, and appearance. Yes. Appearance matters. That's interesting to me. I I have to think that uh, as much as I love barbecue, I don't think of it as a necessarily telegenic food. <laughs> Does that make sense? Uh, yes. But I, I guess I have to depart from that now because if you're on Instagram or TikTok now, <laughs> yeah. it's all about yeah, it's all about how it looks. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Okay. You write in the book, Black Smoke that you didn't see many other black barbecue judges, despite a long history of African-American barbecue. And this idea of black visibility in barbecue is really at the heart of the new book. You call attention to a 2004 TV special you saw, which seems like a pivotal moment. Yes. Now, whether you like your barbecue basted or brown, sizzled or seared, We're going to hit the road for the mother of all barbecue events in Memphis, Tennessee, home of Elvis, and where everyone agrees, pork is king. Tell me what you noticed about this Paula Dean special back in 04. Well, I was really excited to watch it because I thought, okay, here's a chance to just find out the latest of what's going on in barbecue in the South. And then an hour later, when the credits are rolling, my mouth is agape because no African-Americans had been interviewed for that special. There were some in the background doing stuff, but no one made it on air. And I thought, well, how does this happen first? And then the second thing I thought, well, maybe I got it twisted. Maybe it was Paula Deen's Scandinavian barbecue, and I just didn't pay close attention to the ad. (laughs) But it was definitely (laughs) Southern. Southern. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. And so that spurred me to just look at other uh, aspects of food media. And what I found is that the people who decide what food stories get told about barbecue were not including African-Americans. And that did not square with my experience because barbecue is a huge part of black food culture. And anybody who looks at U.S. history, especially with barbecue, would know that African-Americans had made significant contributions to the cuisine. So I was like, how do we get pushed to the sidelines? To tell the history of barbecue in the United States is also to tell the story of slavery and emancipation and black entrepreneurship and 
co-opting, as you've said there. Tell us about uh, Mary Jean or Marie-Jean. Yeah, Marie-Jean. So fascinating uh, character that I found in, in my research. So she was an enslaved woman. 1840s Arkansas in a place called Arkansas Post, which was one of the earliest European settlement in that area. It went through French, Spanish, and then, you know, English. So, you know, very multinational. Um, and so there's a newspaper article about her superintending a barbecue. That was the language at that point for being a pit master. So picture that, man. You got a black woman enslaved telling dudes what to do with the barbecue. She eventually buys her freedom. Uh, and I believe it's because she was hired out to generate income for these barbecues, right? And then she ends up running a restaurant in Arkansas Post. And when she dies in the 1850s, the white newspaper eulogizes her. Now, there's some racism thrown in there, but mm. they put it on par with the great restaurateurs of the era. That would have been unusual. Very unusual. To see an obituary like that. To see an obituary, to name her, to praise her. All three of those things coming together. Um, and then to have a woman in the mix with barbecue. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. Do you think that barbecue skews male or does just the story of barbecue, as it's told, misperceive that? I would say overall in the sweep of history, barbecue skews male uh, with white majority culture. In black culture, black women have been in the barbecue game from the earliest days. So I think there's a difference there that plays out kind of just in, a, in racial dynamics. But uh, overall, the way the barbecue is presented, man, it just seems like an old boys club. Uh, it's very, very male. I want to pause here to acknowledge that barbecue is also rooted in Native American culinary traditions. And you write that you often get a double take when you share that. Yeah, because I think because African-Americans so dominated barbecue, a lot of people believe black folks invented it. And believe me, I wanted to prove that, right? Because I wanted to put an X across my chest, shout Wakanda forever, right? Because we <laughs> invented barbecue. But, uh, you know, when you look at the early history, clearly there was something that Europeans saw when they came to the Americas that was different than the kind of cooking, meat cooking they were used to. Mm. That was called barbecue. And eventually Europeans melded their kind of quick grilling techniques onto the slow smoking traditions of Native Americans, because in addition to the, uh, you know immediate feasting, um, a lot of barbecue was about preserving meat for later use. Oh, is that where smoking comes in? Yeah, so really, it was really slow, a uh, slow fire, uh -huh. smoking over direct smoking, not indirect, direct smoking over several days. Sometimes it could be several days, but usually it was like about a day. Now, does the word barbecue come from Spanish barbacoa? That's the uh, so the I, the kind of the explanation I've always heard is that. The Spanish tried to approximate the word the indigenous people were using for – at first it was just the frame. It wasn't really the meat or the process. It was just this frame, the raised platform. That's what a barbecue was. And you see that word used throughout the Americas, not just in the Caribbean. And then eventually it becomes barbacoa and that becomes not only the noun for the food but also the event and the process. Okay, so the term is probably born in indigenous cultures as well. Right, okay. yeah. It's just a, trying to, an approximation, and then the English approximation is barbecue. You know, what you're getting at uh, indirectly there is how hard it is to tell the really early story of barbecue because it's largely an unwritten story, right? It's unwritten, and you talk about hazy. <laughs> it's definitely unwritten. And unfortunately, the people who did the early writing weren't very accurate with what they were doing. Um, so, you know, because they were grappling for how to describe this new cooking process that they hadn't really seen before. And so they applied European words 
to a cooking process that was kind of different. And so, and it, it's just really sloppy in the early history. You think of, I don't know, just like really distinctive regional styles of barbecue, Texas, Kansas City, North Carolina. Do you think Colorado has anything close to a style? I think we had the the seedlings of a style uh, and we got away from it. Because if oh. you go back, yeah, if you go back several decades, we were known for lamb and bison. Uh, in fact, if you go to a knowledgeable butcher today and ask for a Denver rack, you're going to get lamb ribs. Uh, and so uh, I think that we could retap that and maybe even create a tradition now. I'd be excited for that. We could create our own signature lamb and bison dishes. Um, so we used to have one, but we just got away from it. Interesting. Yeah. So a Denver rack was lamb ribs. Yes. And then did you know anything about the kind of barbecue sauces here? No, I don't. Because yeah. uh, that's one of the things that you don't see a lot of description of. It's more the people talk about the meat, mm-hmm. maybe some of the side dishes. And it may be because the barbecuers in the past are like the ones today. They're not giving up the goods when it comes to describing the sauce. <laughs> we have to talk about the late Bruce Randolph Sr., Daddy Bruce. There's a street named after him in Denver, a school as well. And I think of him as a barbecue humanitarian. Mm -hmm. He was also the official caterer of the Denver Broncos. Uh, You write that he flew down to Super Bowl 78 with ribs, hams, and briskets for the team. He starts out, though, with restaurants in Texas. Tell us about the loan he gets once he arrives in Colorado. Yeah, so this benefactor, and this is huge, because again, at at a time when, um, you know, I think the most consistent complaint of black entrepreneurs is lack of access to capital. To capital. And someone lends him money so he can get started in business. And I just thought that was fascinating. I didn't know that story. Because uh, I think one of the reasons why a lot of black entrepreneurs went into barbecue, because it's really a low bar- barrier to entry. Um, some of the most storied barbecue restaurants that we know of today started with somebody just digging a hole in their yard. Or, a true pit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And cooking one pig. And this cooking it and then whatever they sold, you know, they would just sell until they got rid of that one pig. And it was only later that people started doing multiple things, right? Um, but that was easy to do. And health code regulations weren't as uh, stringent as they are today. I don't, I don't see anybody being able to do that today. So what does Daddy Bruce buy with this, this loan? So um, one of the things that he does is uh, he gets, you know, he gets, gets, he gets his equipment so that he can start out. Um, I can't remember if he got actual uh, a building at that point. I know that comes later, but it, it, all the necessary stuff that he needs to get started. So, yeah. And he had been cooking barbecue in Texas, brings right. it to Colorado. Right. But speak to his humanitarian side. It's a really important aspect of his life. I think probably more people know him for his humanitarian side. And, and the biggest thing was just giving away uh, food on Thanksgiving to thousands of people. And uh, he actually made national news for that. Uh, he was in the Los Angeles Times, uh, other national newspapers for, um, his, the, you know, just the care that he showed to everybody. And he always would say, you know, God loves you and so does Daddy Bruce, right? That mm. was one of his signature. And that's why I put him in the church chapter. Even though he wasn't clergy, he was a very uh, spiritual, religious man who lived out his faith. In this book, Adrian, you write that the black church was arguably the first autonomous institution shaped by African-Americans in the United States. What's the connection to barbecue? Yeah, I, I, could, I don't know exactly why there's a correlation between preaching the word of God and smoking meat, but it's there. <laughs> uh, a lot of black preachers uh, do barbecue, and they usually do it as a hobby, but there are quite a few who have it as a kind of a side business affiliated with their church. 
and it's a way to raise funds for the church as well. And um, sometimes it's people in the congregation that start the barbecue tradition. And I have to tell you, uh, personally, barbecue has been distracting to my own spiritual journey. Uh, yeah, you know, when I'm studying scripture and I see the story of the burning bush um, with Moses, I wonder, did it smell like hickory? <laughs> Oak, maybe mesquite. You know, the the prophecy about the valley of the dry bones, was it spare ribs? You know, <laughs> that's just me. I know I need counseling. Uh, oh, we're going to get emails for your sacrilege here. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so you see that uh, going back to the days of slavery, um, enslaved people often uh, got together with barbecue, and it was also a time for building community and also, uh, you know, a time of spiritual practice. And uh, it's interesting because in addition to kind of the barbecue on the plantation, periodically there would be these things, these revivals or camp meetings that would be several days. And they would be preaching all day long. And preachers figured out that barbecue would bring a crowd, right? Mm. So they would have barbecue on the side. And so that added to the spiritual dimension, um, you know, and connected barbecue with good times, but also spiritual practice, building community. A few kind of rapid fire questions. You have plenty of recipes in this book for hot honey sauce, barbecue brisket, banana pudding. Uh, But for those of us who don't want, like, Everything from scratch. We don't have to do that. What do you think is the best commercially available barbecue sauce? Man, I am a huge fan of Gates. Gates. Gates barbecue sauce out of Kansas City. I just love the taste of it. Um, And that's my favorite commercial sauce. Now, is that like more of a vinegary or a sugary? It's more sugary. So it's tomato-based. Tomato-based, right. Yeah, And I I don't know if they have sugar or molasses, but a sweet tomato-based sauce that's a little thick. Uh, that's more typifies Kansas City sauces. Gates. Mm-hmm. And you're not on their payroll. I am not I'm on their payroll. I'm just saying, yeah. for transparency's sake, <laughs> yes. Adrian Miller. That's important. Uh, do you have a favorite Colorado barbecue joint? Uh, my ultimate favorite closed, and that was Boney's Smokehouse. Um, but uh, on my website, I have uh, a whole thing of barbecue restaurants that I like, and people can go there. But some of my t- favorites are Roaming Buffalo. Uh, and they are one of the few joints that are doing lamb and bison. So in I that the, Colorado tradition. Yeah, in that Colorado tradition. What was it again? Rome, Roaming Buffalo. Barbecue. Roaming Buffalo. Yeah, location in Denver and also uh, in Golden. I also like Owl Bear. You know, hoot, hoot, growl, growl, all one word. I don't know if you ever played Dungeons and Dragons. I didn't. Oh, okay. Um, Owl Bear. Owl Bear. It's, a, it's an homage to one of the mythical creatures. But he is actually a guy who worked at Franklin Barbecue, which is probably the most famous barbecue joint in the U.S. It's the place in Austin, Texas, where people line up for four hours. Wow. Yeah. Wasn't your first full-time job at a barbecue restaurant? That's in, right. In Aurora? That's right. Luther's Barbecue. Uh, it was off Havana. And so that I was a dish, you know, I was like a busser, dishwasher. So that was my first job. And, and no longer open, Luther's. Right. It burned down in the 90s. And you write that that's a fate too common for such enterprises, burning down. Yeah, if you're doing it the old school way, a lot of places have fires. Um, Franklin Barbecue, which I mentioned, had a fire a couple years ago. Some very prominent barbecue joints uh, destroyed by fire. In fact, recently, one of the oldest barbecue joints, especially black-owned barbecue joints in the country, in Mariana, Arkansas, was a place called Jones Barbecue, uh, burned down. And so they're in the process of building. Now the, they, they are rebuilding. They are rebuilding. I take comfort in that. Yeah. I think the, the challenge or why it's happening less often today is there are few people, fewer people doing it the old fashioned way. And what do you mean when you say the old fashioned way? Well, I mean like having an actual pit, yeah. burning down wood, you know, uh, all that grease and all that kind of stuff on the grill. A lot of people are using gas smokers now. 
And so, uh, and part of that is for volume. Does that compromise quality? Is uh, it just no, less tasty? It, it still tastes good, um, but it's not, it doesn't have that added kind of charcoal taste for me that I like, mm-hmm. um, but it still tastes good. And the reason they're doing it is for volume. And what's interesting is they're faking the funk. They're they're trying to convince people that they're doing you, it. The old... Wait, we have to say that again. They're faking <laughs> the funk. Yes. And the way they're doing that is they're trying to convince people they're doing it the old school way by piling wood outside. <laughs> wait, that they don't actually use? Right. It's like prop wood. Yes. Adrian, you write in the introduction about sometimes smelling like barbecue. So this happened at least once when you worked at the state capitol as a senior policy analyst for Governor Bill Ritter. Yes. So to wrap up, have you learned to embrace smelling like barbecue? Only in certain circumstances. I just, I'm still, I'm not convinced that it's good to smell like barbecue on a first date if the person doesn't know you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Name one essential side before we go. Oh, potato salad. Okay. Boy, you didn't hesitate there. Oh, no. Potato salad. Yeah. Thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. I appreciate you. Thank you. Adrian Miller of Denver, also known as the Soul Food Scholar, is the author of Black Smoke, African-Americans and the United States of Barbecue. We spoke in April. And Adrian put together a barbecue playlist for us, which you can find on the CPR News Spotify account. I'll reiterate for transparency's sake that Adrian Miller is a member of the CPR Board of Directors. I want to sit at the welcome table Yes, I, I want to sit at the welcome table And I'm, I'm going to sit at the welcome table Sit at the welcome table See that beautiful city One of these days, one of these Woo! I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Nancy Lawful. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC You may now be excused from the table <laughs>